Good morning, brothers and sisters. A very warm welcome to all of you here in church this morning. And if you are a visitor, a very warm welcome to you also. Welcome also to those joining us via live stream. As we all join together for worship this morning, may God's awesome name be lifted high through our singing, our prayer, and also the opening of his word. May we all be encouraged and challenged and also comforted by the wonderful gospel of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Consistory has the following announcements to pass on. Sister Nikki Hall and Brother Ashley Mulder have indicated their intentions to enter into the married state according to, according to the ordinance of God. They desire to begin this holy state in the name of the Lord and complete it to his glory. If no lawful objections are brought forward, the ceremony will take place, the Lord willing, Saturday the 28th of May at 12.30pm in the Free Reformed Church of Southern River, with Reverend Poppy officiating. The consistory with deacons will meet, the Lord willing, at 8pm tomorrow evening in the consistory room. And this morning we may welcome to the pulpit Reverend Husinger, Emeritus Minister of our sister church in Armadale. And this afternoon's service will be led by Brother Peter Terpstra. Before we commence worship, let's sing together from Psalm 84, verse 1. Let us rise to receive God's greeting. <clears throat> we confess our help is in the name of the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth. Amen. Receive God's greeting. 
Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. Amen. In response to God's greeting, let us sing together from hymn 66, the stanzas 1 and 3. Let us now submit ourselves to the words of God's covenant 
and afterwards we will sing together from Psalm 12, the stanzas 1 and 4. God in his mercy has made his covenant with us and with our children. We submit ourselves to these words so that we may learn to see our own sins and misery. They point us to Jesus Christ who has paid for our transgressions. And we pray for his spirit that we may walk in, the, in these commandments. God spoke and in Christ speaks all these words to us saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder you shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's.
Let us unite in prayer and ask the Lord for his blessing. Triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for assembling us on this our Lord's Day that we may worship you and may listen to your word. Thank you for this good Sunday, a day of rest and worship. May your word and your worship indeed refresh us, but most of all, may it praise and honor you. Thank you that we can put all our other concerns and our daily busyness aside and focus on you. Thank you that we may meet together in peace and may do so even without masks. Lord, thank you that we can come out of certain restrictions. We pray for all those who suffer from COVID. Grant recovery, we pray. Accept our worship now and our praise, for you are worthy of them. The living ones in heaven, the cherubim and the seraphim, they do so. They teach us much. Accept our praise as well. Thank you that you have given rains in the past week to refresh the earth, that the landscape starts to turn green, verdant green. Thank you, Lord, for that, and we pray for more. And now we ask you, look upon us in grace, for we have submitted ourselves to the words of your covenant. You are a holy God, and ask us to be holy as you are. Those commandments remind us of our transgressions and shortcomings. Forgive us, Lord. Cleanse us in the blood of our Lord and through his Holy Spirit. Look upon us in him, not as we are in ourselves. For when we listen to these commandments, then, Lord, we see how far we fall short. Short of doing everything to your glory, of loving you with everything that we have, and loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. When we think of your name, too often we're more interested in our own reputation. And Lord, when it comes to false testimony, forgive us where we cherish hatred or ill feeling. And rid us of our greed and jealousy, destructive powers. And so we come to you asking for grace through Jesus Christ who died on the cross for us. We thank you that he kept all these commandments, credit us with his holy life, we ask. You promised it in our baptisms. And now as we want to open your word, bless us, open our hearts to it. 
Make us understand it. Keep all distractions far from us. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Our reading this morning is first of all taken from the Old Testament, from Genesis 17, the verses 1 through 7. And then we'll go to the New Testament, to the book of Acts, chapter 16. So first of all, to the first book of the Bible, Genesis, chapter 17. The first seven verses. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Thus far from book of Genesis, now we turn into the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 16. Our text is taken from this chapter, verses 30 and 31. We'll read the whole chapter. Then Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to and they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by and they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. 
And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbers, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then we come to our text, verses 30 and 31. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe 
in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. We'll read to the end of the chapter. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. In response to scripture, let us sing together from Psalm 103. We'll sing the stanzas one and four.
beloved congregation of our Lord and Jesus Christ. During the Great Reformation, the doctrine of infant baptism sparked a fiery debate with the Anabaptists, who practiced only what they called believers' baptism. Denying infant baptism. They said there's no text in the Bible which requires infant to be baptized. And since no evidence exists, they advocate a more individual approach. Each individual person must first profess and show faith before being baptized. That's how they see progress from the Old to the New Testament. Whereas the Old Test stress more the nation and the national character of the covenant and the New Testament, we have a more personal and individual approach, they say. Well, we've read from the Old Testament, purposely from Genesis, where God cut his covenant with Abram, naming him Abraham. And then we turned our attention to the book of Acts, where we repeatedly find that the apostles baptized believers and their household. We see this in the conversion of Lydia. Her whole household received the sign and seal of the covenant. In our text, the same happens with the household of the Philippian jailer. Does this prove infant baptism? And what's the correlation between the Old and the New Testament? To see this, I preach to you the word of God under this theme. Believe in the Lord Jesus. You will be saved, you and your household. Believe in the Lord Jesus. You will be saved, you and your household. We will first of all see that there is the command to believe in the Lord Jesus and so be saved. After the conversion of Lydia, Paul and companions continued their missionary efforts in Philippi, in that Roman colony of veteran soldiers. Satan tried everything in his power to undermine the Lord's messengers. In our scripture reading, we have noted how the devil first tries to undermine the gospel by means of that slave girl. She shouts and screams for all to hear. These are servants of the Most High who are bringing you the message of salvation. Actually, it was bad publicity. In the earthly ministry of our Lord... You may remember how Satan used demons to expose Jesus to the same maltreatment. Demons, in a sense, broadcasted the truth of the gospel by saying that this man is the Son of God. But they do it in such a way as to ridicule the gospel. Maybe you've heard of somebody promoting the team is saying, ah, here are the champions of last year. <laughs> Mocking them. And that's what Satan is trying to do here. For it's not really what they're saying, but how they're saying it. 
Satan wants to mock the gospel and its messengers. But it is ironic that the evil spirit seems to engage in evangelism. These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling us the way of salvation. So you notice that wherever Jesus is sowing the good seed, the devil will come along and he will sow weeds or a look-alike, as we read also in one of Christ's parables. He does it to confuse people, to oppose Jesus. Now in... <clears throat> In this scripture reading, we find that the jailer asks Paul, what must I do to be saved? Saved. There's that biblical word. And you know, when you read that, you ask yourself, how did this man come to ask such a question? What must I do to be saved? That's quite a question. Does he know about the idea of salvation? We know Caesars were worshipped as saviors. So it was a common term, probably more common in their day than in our day. But here, it's a rescue from God's judgment and rescued unto peace with God. Now, Jesus did not allow Satan to succeed. In the name of Jesus, Paul exorcised the demon. Jesus is in control, not Satan. Furious, Satan spurs on the businessmen. If Paul dares to drive out their source of income, they dare to drive him out. So unsuccessful in his first attempt, Satan then uses violence. Cleverly concealing his real commercial motive, the businessmen accused Paul and his companions of inciting a riot and introducing a strange religion. Notice that they're called Jews because somehow they had some common <coughs> traits. They had the same Old Testament. But they say, these men have customs and practices that are not allowed in the Roman world. And then without a fair trial, they managed to have them sentenced. And they stripped them of their clothes and they beat them with rods, flogged them publicly, humiliating them. And of course, it's extremely painful. And if that was not enough, they are thrown into prison or really into maximum cells, maximum security cells, putting their feet into stocks. It's a terrible thing that was done to them. But did the enemy win? Well, you read in this in chapter that even at midnight, Paul and Silas are found praying to God in the name of Jesus. They're singing hymns to God. Instead of being beaten and broken, they rejoice that they were found worthy and to suffer for the name of their master. 
And so Jesus makes it abundantly clear that Satan hasn't won at all. Nothing happens outside of Jesus' control. And then in the middle of the night, when all is dark, something happens. An earthquake. Now when that happens, everything moves. Everything is swaying. Your cupboards, everything is falling out of them. And things that seem to be solid, they break up. Walls found, they crumble. And roofs come collapsing down. There are fissures in the ground. And one expects a lot of damage. It's a very scary feeling to be walking on firm ground as though you're on the ocean. But you notice here how Jesus controls all things with precision. He has a very precise purpose in mind, and that is open those cell doors, take off those shackles, those chains, set those prisoners free. And so he makes the earthquake do exactly that. It's very precise. And that really deserves our attention. And I think the jailer must have been impressed. And so were the magistrates, who later on want to get rid of the apostles. They're scared. So Jesus is in control. He not only can make the earth quake, but he can do it in such a manner that what he wants happens to the letter. The jailer awakes in his own room, either in the prison itself or in a building close by. An earthquake. He runs to the jail to inspect it, and finding all the cell doors open and no prisoner, he fears the worst, of course. What do you expect from prisoners if the cell doors open? They're going to take to their heels. And in those days, a jailer would pay with his own life if he allowed one prisoner to escape. And so he's ready to do so. He takes out his sword. But Paul shouts out, Man, put your sword back in its sheath. We're all here. What a surprise. Give jailbirds a chance to escape and they will vanish. But they're all huddled around Paul. Is that not just almost unbelievable? Paul has them all there and you can just imagine that Paul has them all there and he's telling them that Jesus done this and that he's in control and he's ready to present the gospel. He sees an opportunity. That would be just like Paul. And then the jailer comes in when he sees all these things. He is so overawed by what has happened that he asks that question, what must I do to be saved? Again, I ask, how did he come to that question? Had he heard about the slave girl who had announced Paul and his companions as servants of the Most High? 
who had come to proclaim the way of salvation, the way to be saved? Or had he overheard Paul and Silas praying to God in the name of the Savior? Or Paul and Silas were singing hymns at midnight. And you know, many of the hymns, they focused on Jesus Christ. Think of the hymn of praise in Philippians chapter 2. Of Jesus, who was the Son of God, who though he was in the form of God, did not hang on to equality with God in glory, but emptied himself and became a man. Think of that hymn of praise, all about our Lord. And so those hymns could have been teaching the jailer about Jesus and the way of salvation. And so, whatever it was, could have been a combination of all three. And as well as that earthquake, with all its precise results, so impressed the jailer that he falls on his knees before Paul and asks, what must I do to be saved? Brothers and sisters, it is important to ask the right question. Asking wrong questions, well, gives you no help and leaves you in ignorance. But good penetrating questions increase your knowledge and skill. And this jailer, he asked the right question. What must I do to be saved? And it comes about because Jesus shows his sovereign power in sending that earthquake. That scares him. He, probably many others, think they're going to die. He wants to be saved. But please notice the nature of the question. It's general and comprehensive. Salvation in a complete sense of the word. Not only from danger, but from your sins and from Satan. A complete salvation. And this question is not only for him, but it's comprehensive in the sense that it applies for all people. Male and female, young and old, slave and free. All of us should ask that question. And it's urgent. Because it's most important and meaningful. I think of our Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only comfort in life and death? And then the answer will focus on Jesus Christ. Through whom we have complete salvation. And then the apostolic answer in this chapter, consistent with the biblical reply from our Lord and his apostles, is believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Believe. That's trust. Now, would you trust a stranger whom you do not really know? And you've been brought up as a heathen, You don't know this Paul and this Silas. As far as you know, there must have been some criminals who deserved to be beaten 
Would you trust their message and believe in the Lord Jesus? You notice, not a simple thing. And yet to believe is to trust. Place your trust unreservedly in Jesus of Nazareth. Have no reservations even though he was crucified as a criminal. You have to believe in all his miracles. And that he's not only a man but the son of God. He can not only heal people. He can also open cell doors. And without any chisels or whatever. He can take chains off people. Amazing. How much could you expect this jailer to know about Jesus? Very little, if any. He has so little knowledge on which to base his trust. And so, really, what happens here is very demonstrative. And the Spirit is using what Jesus has done to impress the gospel. We, if we hear such a message, we are obviously suspicious by nature. We're not going to believe a stranger. Well, why would this jailer believe Paul? So it's not easy. But the Spirit has worked through this wonder and also through what happened to Paul and Silas. Through the message that they gave in their prayers and singing. And God will even sign and seal it by a sacrament so that any doubt will be erased from their minds. We have that when a child is baptized, when we have Lord's Supper, God uses sacraments to remove any doubts. And here, the Lord will do the same through the sacrament of baptism. But believe in the Lord Jesus Paul and Silas indeed are servants of the Most High, and they proclaim the way of salvation. Indeed. And what happened in jail underlines that powerful message. Believe in the Lord Jesus. It's so simple, we tend to complicate it. People may try to add to the Lord's simple demand. Pharisees added a thousand rules which a man needed to keep in order to be saved. But Paul and Silas, they went about delivering the message that had been agreed to in Jerusalem by the apostles and elders, that it was faith in Jesus alone, not in circumcision or any keeping the law in order to be saved. No, believe in Jesus Christ. That was the simple rule. And in the context of Acts, that's important. If you find it too meager, too easy, too liberal, well, we can complain to our Lord and Master. If we wish to add pet doctrines, pet favorite rules or strictures, remember what Paul and his associates taught. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Trust him with all your heart and mind. That is what he asks, simply and completely. 
And then the promise that is attached is, you will be saved, you and your household. The jailer is saved from certain death. Yes, that is true. All the inmates are still there. What a relief. And trembling before Paul, he falls down as though to worship him. But Paul will have none of that. Worship God. Bow to the Lord, Jesus. Yes, he's been saved in the sense from death. We often use the word in that simple sense too. That we're saved from further injury in a car accident. That we're saved from drowning by the quick thinking lifeguard. But Paul in his work and letters, of course, means much more than that. We are saved through Jesus and his cross. From our own sins and from Satan, the tyranny of the evil one. Salvation. It's to be rescued from certain disaster and it's to be rescued unto eternal life. Not only from something, but unto the most wonderful thing, eternal life in Jesus Christ. Just as with a worldwide flood, not one person can outrun the fiery holocaust that will come on this earth when Jesus comes. To be saved ultimately means you are rescued, truly rescued by the mighty hand and outstretched arm of our Lord. The wrath, the judgment of God abides on all who do not turn away from their sin and believe in Jesus Christ. So to be saved is a wonderful thing. You are saved from sin. And that in itself is, is a tremendous benefit because sin is addictive. It drives us, it enslaves us. Man is steeped in sinful ignorance, blinding him. Just think of a place where they don't know the Lord and because they are steeped in superstition, there are so many things that scare them. And they turn to this ritual and to that superstition. Satan tyrannizes them. But Jesus saves us from all of that. And as I said, he also gives us renewal of life. An everlasting life. By faith salvation comes to us and to our house. As Jesus told Zacchaeus. By faith salvation came to the household of Rahab. And by faith salvation comes to the jailer and his house. And Paul, he makes it very clear. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once. He and his house, his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Now some people will and discredit the idea that there is one head of a household representing the whole household. Doesn't apply in our age. Everybody for, them, for themselves, we, say, we think. 
They say that the whole household is mentioned here because each individual member of the family believed in God and was consequently baptized. They will reject infant baptism, defending only what is called believer's baptism. But, brothers and sisters, this does an injustice into what is happening here in this chapter. First of all, we've seen that general, comprehensive question. And now Paul also answers with a general, comprehensive answer. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Paul didn't know who was in his family and his household. Children, slaves, relatives. They often had a nuclear family. Father, mother, children, along with grandparents, relatives, and also slaves and their families. That was what composed a household in those days. And Lydia, she was a person of means. So she probably had quite a household. An extended family, as we would say. But the point is, Paul doesn't know who was all included. And he doesn't need to know. Because Paul is giving a general answer. A comprehensive answer. You and your household. Whether all within his household believed is thus irrelevant. The adults did seem to believe. But the really point is salvation has come to that house. Sometimes people have to wait a long time and keep praying until their loved ones finally are converted and profess faith in the Lord Jesus. But in this case, the jailer knows that <coughs> salvation has come to his household. Is this a new rule or is it an old one? Does God, as many claim, deal with the whole nation in the Old Testament? but only deal with individuals in the New Testament? Where does one read of such a rule change? Well, brothers and sisters, we purposely read from Genesis 17. If you wish to understand the New Testament, the book of Acts, and you want to see about this growth of the church and witness it, then you absolutely need to understand the covenant that God cut with Abram, making him Abraham. And that covenant is everlasting. Now in the Old Testament, the word everlasting can mean for a very long time. And it can be used in that sense, generally speaking. But yet here, it really deserves to be understood literally. For God changed Abram to Abraham, a father of many nations, a multitude of nations. Sarai becomes Sarah, the mother of many nations. The point is that the descendants of Abram will come from many nations, from all the families of the earth. And so what applies here is not just for the Jewish nation until Jesus comes. That's not the point. The point is different. Because we have to look through the seed of Abraham. Indeed, Jesus Christ, as Paul will say in his letters, let's say to the Galatians. 
So we're not going to equate this covenant that God makes with Abram and equate it to the covenant that God makes with Israel at Mount Sinai. Now that covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai is a stepping stone. But when Jesus comes, he comes as the seed of Abraham. Just check the genealogies that are given of Jesus. And through the cross in which Jesus died for us sinners, God is drawing people from all nations. God not only calls the Jews to repentance and faith, but as you keep reading in the book of Acts, he also goes to the Gentiles. And Paul, the missionary to the Gentiles, he goes throughout that whole world from one end to the other. He brings the gospel. And people believe as many as God has called unto him. So Paul calls the jailer and his household. Paul called Lydia and the women at the seashore. And God the Spirit opens their hearts so that they fasten their attention on the message. And that they trust it. You see, in this way... Abraham is starting to become a father of many nations. At that time, it was only just starting. How does Abraham become a father of many nations? Because God is sending the gospel to the ends of the earth. And people are listening from every nation. And so that covenant really is an everlasting covenant. Because it lasts until the end of the age. And it goes to the ends of the world. That is the scope of that covenant. And therefore what God says in Genesis 17 also applies here in the book of Acts. That is not only for Abraham, but for his whole household. And that's what we find in the book of Acts. That same rule. We don't find a rule change. But it's the same one. The whole household. A general question. A general answer. We don't need to debate. Who were all involved in that household. Because here. It's just a general. Comprehensive answer. That is given. God included slaves. Bought with money. Children of slaves. Wives of slaves. Everyone under the legal authority of the jailer. Those are the terms of the everlasting covenant with Abram and his seed. And so if that covenant still applies as it does. And if Jesus is making that covenant come true today. Through the call of the gospel throughout the nations. And then it's simple logic to know that God adheres to that same rule. He may have changed the sign of the covenant from circumcision into baptism because there's no more shedding of blood as the letter to the Hebrews makes clear. But the covenant, it remains the same. <clears throat> and so you see that this is a wonderful thing for us and we're therefore consolidated in the Faith and in the practice of not only having ourselves baptized when we're adults, but also our children.
even when they do not know anything about it. And we're following what Jesus has said, that these children, they are heirs of the kingdom of God. And we have to become like children, trusting in God, even as children trust parents. And so the sign of the covenant was administered. Baptism was administered when they believed. And I know that's a little bit of a shock to our system. Because in our <clears throat> idea, even on the mission field, if someone comes to faith and they are converted, we rejoice. Yes. But are such people baptized immediately? No. We wait until they're instructed thoroughly. Maybe a year, two years, three years. And then have them baptized. Here, somebody who doesn't know anything about the gospel, he believes and immediately is baptized. And that is something that disturbs us. Think about that. And so you see that the sign of the covenant was given so that any doubt will be taken away. You remember the Apostle Paul himself, that when Jesus approached him and he had him called Brother Paul, then he was given the message that the Lord has forgiven your sins, Paul. And Paul could hardly believe it. But he was told, Arise, be baptized. And wash away your sins. And here, the same thing. Not only were their wounds washed, but they were washed. And to underline the truth that their sins were forgiven and that God is at peace with them. And so let the sign of the covenant baptize encourage you too. That you and your household are saved in Jesus Christ. Saved comprehensively all praise to the Lamb and to the Spirit and to the Father. Amen. In response to God's word, let us sing together from Psalm 103. We'll sing the stanzas 6 and 7.
In our pastoral prayer, we'll remember the following. We'll remember Fairhaven Hostel, the residents and the staff, and we'll also remember the passing away of Brother Herman Decker. We'll ask the Lord for comfort for his family. In our midst is Macy Burklar with her husband Taylor and their family. Let us unite in prayer. Triune God, we thank you. Thank you for your word, that you are our God for us and for our children, for our household. Thank you, Lord, for that. Even in our churches, Lord, there have been questions about this. When a child was adopted, should that child be baptized? But you taught us that you will be saved, you and your household. And we thank you for your message. And we pray that you will encourage us also by the sacrament of baptism. Thank you for the opportunity to worship you. You give us a beautiful Sunday, beautiful autumn weather. We ask that the Spirit may use the word in our life to refresh us as well. For the Spirit has come. Jesus has not left us alone when he went up to inherit might and glory on the throne. May the Spirit fill us with all that Jesus gained for us, that full salvation, salvation from our sin and guilt, from the tyranny of the devil, salvation unto eternal life. Spirit of all understanding, of all grace, of truth and prayer, show us the paths of life unending and always guide us everywhere. By you we say, Abba, Father, and we say of Jesus, you are Lord. And we have praised you with one accord. Be here where Christ his church gathers. Take now the offerings that we bring and hear us when your praise we sing. You directed the servants to go to Philippi, and you blessed them. Thank you. Continue to bless that word as it is preached out on the mission field in P&G, also here in Australia, and around this world. May your gospel resound and echo around the globe. We thank you, Lord, for all that you give us in Jesus Christ. Thank you for your care, for your providence, every day again. Also in this time of restrictions that we had to go through, and there is COVID, members got sick, but you give recovery, and we thank you for that. We pray for those who are in the hospitals, and who needs special care, if it is your will, Lord, grant recoveries. We pray be with our children. Bless them. We also want to see our children raised in your ways. Therefore, we have our Christian schools. Bless them, Lord. And bless the education there. 
that they may grow up to know you, to praise you, to trust you. Bless the upbringing at home and also the instruction that is given in church, in the catechism classes, and in the Bible study clubs. We pray for a blessing upon all these things. Lord, we ask, be with those who need your hand of healing. Bless medical treatments and medicines, for without your blessing, they do not help. We also ask you to show your mercy and care at Fairhaven Hostel towards the staff and towards the residents. A number of residents have contracted the coronavirus and some staff are also not able to come to work. There's pressure there. There's a lockdown. And we pray for our members there and that you will show mercy and care and bless everything that has been organized also for such a situation. Lord, we also remember those who are mourning the loss of loved ones. We think of the passing of our brother Herman and Decker. Be with his family. Yes, there is a big family. In our midst, there are Macy Burklar with her husband Taylor and family. And there are many more. Grant your comfort to them all. That we may know that in Jesus Christ, we are safe now and always. That he is the resurrection and the life. Thank you, Lord, for what you give us in him. To you, Father, who sent the Son to complete the plan of salvation. And to you, the Son, who humbled yourself unto death on the cross to save us sinners. And to you, the Spirit, who propelled the gospel of Jesus into this world of sinners. We give you our thanks and praise. Amen. You now have the opportunity to give your offerings unto the Lord. <clears throat> the offering will be taken in the church service, and it's for the ministry of mercy. And afterwards, we will sing our final song, Psalm 105, the stanzas 3 and 4. And if you can, we'll do that standing.
Lift up your hearts to the Lord. Receive his blessing and go in peace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit with you all. Amen.